Good morning, everyone. My name is Adam. I'm so glad to be with you all this morning. I'm also super excited that we have started singing Christmas songs in church. I don't know about you, but I love it, and I want to make the most of it because I know that once Christmas is done, it's another 11 months until we'll be singing those kind of songs again. It's hard to believe that Christmas is already coming up on us so quick. This morning, we are getting into the first message in our series called Emmanuel, God with us. And we have just one more message in this series before our Christmas Eve services, and then it's Christmas. I might get in a little bit of trouble here. I don't want to cause any disunity in the church, so if this doesn't fly in this service, I won't do it in second service. But how many of you, by show of hands, put up a real Christmas tree every single year? All right, there's a few of you. How many of you put up fake Christmas trees? Uh, I'll pray for you. All right, I'm sorry. <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding. I respect it. All growing up, my family would get a real Christmas tree. When I was younger, I have memories of going out, picking out the perfect tree and cutting it down with my family. But then my parents started this slow fade, and we weren't cutting down the tree anymore. We were just going to a shop and picking out a pre-cut tree. And then my parents turned to the dark side, and they got a fake Christmas tree. And it, it almost caused a falling out in my family. Like, we're on good terms now, but it was, it was pretty rough. And since then, my parents started a new Christmas tradition. Whenever they pull out the fake Christmas tree, they take a Sharpie marker and write on that cardboard box some of the significant moments that happened over the course of the year. And even if you don't have any kind of tradition like that, I think that for all of us, or at least most of us, Christmas is kind of a checkpoint in our lives where we reflect on some of the things that have or haven't happened yet in our lives. So this Christmas season will be my second Christmas here at Bridgewater. This will also be my first ever Christmas in 17 years that I'm no longer in school. I was like, whew, it feels really good. There's a lot of really great things that have happened over the course of this last year. And then there's some things that I'm still kind of waiting on in life. Some things that are maybe a little bit discouraging. This Christmas season marks another Christmas of being an unmarried guy. I'm not, that's not an advertisement, by the way. I'm just, just putting it out there. <laughs> it's another Christmas season where I'm not setting up Christmas decorations, not even taking the time to put up a Christmas tree because I don't really have the space for it, and I pretty much live by myself, and I'm not even going to be home, or at least where I live, for Christmas. And so there's some things that I'm still kind of waiting on in life, but how about you? Do you feel like maybe you're in a season of waiting, waiting for things to get better? Maybe this Christmas season, you wish that you had your own kids that you could celebrate the holidays with, but you don't. Or maybe this Christmas season marks another year of still being single. Maybe, maybe you want to uh, find the solution to whatever health issues you're going through but you're just waiting on that, and it seems like your health is going downhill and getting worse and worse and worse. And maybe this is another Christmas year 
without a loved one in your life and you're still dealing with the grief and you know that you have a long time to wait before you see them again in heaven. And one of the hardest things in life to do is to wait. Waiting can be painful. And maybe you have this ache in your heart where you want to find relief and you're, you're not seeing God show up in your life and you're not even sure that you can trust him. Well, the good news is that God is not absent in the waiting. And even if though you're in this season of waiting, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It doesn't mean that he's holding back what you need the most. Actually, God has already given you what you need the most. And so that's what we're going to be turning to God's word to this morning, is to see what God has for us in the waiting. So if you'd like to follow along with me in your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And in this whole passage, I'm willing to bet that most of you are familiar with this one verse. And that's where it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And this is a pretty classic Christmas verse. But then if you read the rest of the verses in this passage, you probably are going to think, what in the world does any of this have to do with Christmas? Like, I'm just going to put the disclaimer out there that as we get into this passage, you're probably not going to be catching the Christmas vibes, all right? But there's an awesome message in this true story, and so we're just going to dig right into it. My game plan for this morning is to read through the whole passage all in one big chunk. And if you get lost or confused along the way, like I totally get it, there's a lot of history here. But then I'll circle our way back around and then we'll walk through it a little bit more slowly. So you guys ready? All right, let's get into it. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah... King Rezin of Aram, Pekah son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and the people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shir Jeshub, and meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Remaliah, Aram Ephraim and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let's invade Judah. Let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. 
Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, and he will bring the king of Assyria. All right, there's a lot of history going on there. Hopefully you're not too lost, but I've got a map up here on the screen, and it's always a fun Sunday when I got a map and a laser pointer. So what we got going on here is the nation of Israel is split into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom is made up of ten tribes of the nation of Israel. And then the southern kingdom has just two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. And it's in the southern kingdom that they have the capital city, Jerusalem. Now, there's two other uh, kingdoms at play here. We have the kingdom of Aram, or Syria. This says kingdom of Damascus because that's like the capital over there. And then at the very tip of the map where we can hardly even see it is Assyria. And Assyria is like the superpower during this time. They are conquering the other lands. They're building up power for themselves. And they're a force to be reckoned with. So the nation of Israel and the nation of Syria formed this alliance to go to war with the Assyrians. And so they tried to recruit the nation of Judah to join their alliance and fight against the Assyrians. But the nation of Judah wouldn't comply. And so in the minds of the, the Israel and in the minds of the Syrians, if you're not for us, then you're against us. And so they turned the tables on Judah and started making their way to the capital, trying to seize Jerusalem and destroy their power there. Now, the king of Judah is a guy named Ahaz. Ahaz is actually probably the most wicked king in the whole history of the, the nation of Judah. This guy was so bad that he even sacrificed some of his children. And it says in the Bible that he didn't follow after David, King David, who was a man after God's own heart. Instead, this guy disobeyed God and just did whatever he wanted to do. But believe it or not, in this story, I'm actually rooting for Ahaz because he's the underdog and God's the one working with him. And these other kings that he's up against are actually some even worse guys than Ahaz probably. These guys are not good guys. So let me give you a profile of these guys that he's up against. We've got King Pekah 
of Israel. This guy is sitting on the throne because he assassinated the last king. He and 50 other guys just totally overthrew the Israeli government, and now they're in power. And then we also have King Rezin of Assyria. And it's not raisin like the fruit, and I'm going to try not to say that this whole time. But, but King Ahaz has already had some negative experiences with King uh, Rezin here because this guy has sent his troops all the way down here and captured this whole region from Judah and conquered it. And so King Ahaz is in a pretty tight spot here. The odds are two against one, and they're really not in his favor. And I'm sure that during this time, he was feeling stranded, backed up against a wall, desperate and alone and looking for help. How many of you feel like that in Christmas? Like Christmas is a war zone. <laughs> Maybe not all of you. But honestly, even in this time of year, when we talk about having joy and being merry and all this Christmas spirit, maybe you're putting up a front because deep down inside, you feel lonely. You feel like you're backed against the wall, like, like you're looking for help or you're in a desperate state. And the big question that I have for us this morning is when we're in that kind of place in life, where are you turning to? For rescue? Do you cope with the stress and the anxiety in your life by turning to excessive drinking? Or do you, you go to entertainment to just be able to shut off your mind and, and put all that stuff aside and just sit in front of like hours of TV or scrolling through social media? And that stuff, and maybe it helps you in the moment, but then when you're back with reality, it never really solved any of your problems, and you still are carrying the weight that you were carrying before. Or maybe some of you, when you're going through the hard times, you turn to other people for your source of rescue. And it's great to have people in your life that you can turn to for validation, for support, for love and care, especially in the hard times. But if that's where you're placing all of your hope for rescue, maybe you'll learn the hard way that even the people that love you the most can still let you down. And some of the things that we turn to for rescue in our lives, they're not necessarily bad things. I mean, I could even list off like ice cream and coffee, not bad things in and of themselves. But we shouldn't try to find from those things what we really need from God. And in Ahaz's most desperate moments, God set, sent the prophet Isaiah to speak to Ahaz on God's behalf. This is what it says in verse 4. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Risen and Aram, the son of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, let's invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabil king over it. Now, these are some words that I should probably write on a sticky note and put on the dash of my car when I'm driving. Keep calm. Um, what else did he say? Don't be afraid and be 
careful. Now, have you ever had this time in your life when you've just come to God's word or you're sitting in a message in church and you're like, God, just speak to my heart. Like, tell me what I need to hear. Well, Ahaz has this unique situation where God is literally sending a prophet to Ahaz to tell him exactly what he needs to hear in his most desperate situation. And God is telling Ahaz, don't worry about this situation. He's saying that these two enemy kings that you're up against are just like smoldering stubs of firewood. Like they're going to burn out and come to an end. And so you don't have to worry about it. And God has some even more encouraging news for Ahaz that he goes in verse 7. This, uh, this attack that you're worried about, he's saying it will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only risen. Within 65 years, Ephraim too will be shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And God is saying, you don't have to worry about these guys because they're only human kings. And God has promised that Ahaz and the people of Judah will not be defeated. They will not be overcome. And if that's God's plan, then these two kings, the king of Israel, the king of Syria, they're not going to stop God's plans. But here's the tricky thing. God doesn't just remove the threat all in one day. God doesn't just send the enemy troops retreating that very day. He doesn't set up some kind of force field around the city of Jerusalem. And so Ahaz is in this season of waiting. He has to go through each and every day choosing to trust God over fear. And so God went over and above to give a sign to Ahaz to confirm that his promise will indeed come true. In verse 10, it says, The Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. So God gives Ahaz this opportunity to ask for a sign, and God doesn't put any parameters on the kind of sign that Ahaz could ask for. Ahaz could ask for anything. In my opinion, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. Ahaz could have been like, show me flying pigs. Or like, send down the biggest shooting star ever. But instead of taking up God's offer, Ahaz says, nah, I don't need a sign. Ahaz is saying that he doesn't want to put God to the test. Now, that sounds like a super spiritual answer, like, oh, I have so much faith in God, I don't need a sign. But in this case, it's not because Ahaz has faith in God. Instead, he's saying he doesn't need a sign because he has some plan B, some other things that he's going to put his faith in instead of God. You see, Ahaz looked to the false gods of the Syrians instead of putting his faith in God's promise. We can read about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and in verse 22. And this is a parallel account 
of the story that we just read. And it says in verse 22, In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him. For he thought, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I will sacrifice to them so that they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. So I mentioned before that there is that bottom city in in, uh, Judah that was conquered by the Syrians. And so Ahaz watches this play out. He sees that the Syrians are having victory in war, and he attributes that to the false gods of this, the Syrians. He's like, wow, if their gods are giving them the power and the strength in battle, then that's what I need to look to for rescue. And so, so he starts sacrificing to these gods of the Syrians, and really, instead of giving him the deliverance and the rescue that he was looking for, down the road, it even led to the downfall of Judah. And then the other thing that he went to for rescue was to the nation of Assyria. And we can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7. So in his time of need, Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pleser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kerr and put Rezin to death. So... Ahaz subscribes to the Assyrian protection plan by paying tribute to the Assyrians with the silver and gold in the, the house of the Lord. God, or Ahaz uses the resources, the things of God, to pay for the deliverance that God has already promised to Ahaz. So I, I try to think about it like this. Like if my car broke down and my neighbor out of the kindness of his heart, said, oh, yeah, I'll fix your car for you for free. Don't worry about it. I got you. And I'm waiting, and my neighbor doesn't get to it on my timeline. And so I break into my neighbor's house, and I steal everything of value so that I can have enough money to pay for somebody else to fix my car. That would be a pretty awful thing to do, right? Well, that's pretty much what Ahaz does to God here. God says, I will rescue you. I will give you deliverance. And then then Ahaz takes all the things from the temple to give to the Assyrians so that the Assyrians could give him the deliverance that he was looking for because God wasn't operating on his timeline. And if I was back in this day, I would not want to stand anywhere near Ahaz in case a lightning bolt came from heaven because... This guy kind of deserved it and what he did to God there. Ahaz didn't take God's opportunity to see a sign, but God gave Ahaz a sign anyways. In verse 13, it says, Then Isaiah said, Hear now you the house of David. 
Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. And this, the sign that God is promising to Ahaz, it has both a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. And I don't really know exactly how this sign played out during the time of Ahaz. I think it happened within two years that Isaiah gave this prophecy because within two years, both the king of Israel and the king of Syria were dead. And so they were no longer a threat to him. But the long-term fulfillment happens 730 years later. And the gospel writer Matthew writes about it and says that Jesus fulfilled this sign. He says in Matthew Chapter 123, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this long-term fulfillment is fulfilled by Jesus. He is the one who is with us, and he has come to us, and he is our rescue. He is our hope, and we just need to look to him. And here's, here's the thing, waiting reveals where our hope is placed. In his waiting, as Ahaz was waiting on God to see this deliverance, this rescue from these enemy kings, he turned to the false gods of the Syrians. He turned to the help of the Assyrians instead of trusting in God. And in your difficult seasons of waiting, my prayer for you and my hope is that you will place your hope in Jesus, because he is God with us. And so when you are lonely, God is with you. And when your health is going downhill, God is with you. When you are grieving the loss of a loved one, God is with you. And when your future isn't lining up the way that you hoped it would go, God is with you. Uh, a few months ago in October, I took a backpacking trip out to the Adirondacks. This was a multi-day trip, and so we hiked pretty deep into the wilderness in the Adirondacks, and we were camping out at the base of the tallest mountain in that whole wilderness, Mount Marcy, which has an elevation of more than 5,000 feet. And normally, to get to the top of this mountain, it is a 14-mile hike from the parking lot to go up and then come back down. But where we were camping, we were only two miles from the top. And so we had this awesome plan to wake up at four in the morning and hike up the mountain while it was still dark so that we could watch the sunrise from the top. And the most impressive thing is we actually got up at four in the morning to start this hike, and we got up there before the sun had come up. And as we're up there, we see that it's getting lighter and lighter, but the view there was nothing there. It's like we were up in a cloud the whole time. And 
I'm pretty sure it was 20 degrees colder up there, and the wind was whipping, and I was packing light. Like, I ran to the top of this mountain, and I was just in a T-shirt. I was like this. And my friend standing next to me, like, shoulder to shoulder to try to stay warm. We were waiting, like, 45 minutes. Like, this view was such a dud. And we were thinking about just coming down from the mountain, calling it quits. And this little gust of wind just blew away some of the clouds. And we got a tiny glimpse of what was behind the clouds. So we're like, all right, we'll wait 15 minutes longer. And then some more wind came and swept away more of the clouds. And I saw one of the most amazing sunrise views, mountain views of my whole life. It was like being up in an airplane where you're just above the clouds and you see that whole blanket and to watch the sun come up. And the sun was there the whole entire time that I was standing up there on the mountain, but I just, I couldn't see it because my perspective was blocked by the clouds in the way. But it was so worth it just to wait and to trust that that view could come into place. And even in your waiting, the Son of God is still there, right there with you, even if you cannot see him. He is God with us. And that's pretty much the summary of the, the Christmas story. God coming to earth to be with us in our brokenness and to mend our relationship with God so that we can be with God forever. And I wasn't planning on adding this in my sermon, but just last night I was doing my devotions and reading through Psalm 23 and I just want to read verse 4. It says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And this whole chapter, I think, really captures this idea of God's presence with us. And my takeaway from that verse is that God doesn't always take us away from the darkest valley. He doesn't just pull us out of there. He doesn't even keep us from having to go in it sometimes. But he's right there with us every step of the way. He is our comfort and our strength. And no matter what season of life you are going through. And my challenge for you this morning is whenever you pray, if you pray at least one time a day to just thank God for his presence with you. And it accomplishes at least two things. Like yes, when you thank God for his presence, you give God the thanks that he deserves. But I think the biggest takeaway for us is when we pray to God and thank him for his presence in our lives, it reminds us that he really is there, even in the difficult moments. And if you're any bit like me, you'd probably have a, tr a hard time remembering. So I had to take a sticky note and write on there, thank God for his presence, and put it on my notebook you could do the same thing by putting a sticky note on your Bible. You could put it on your cereal box in the morning, like whatever it takes. And we have some sticky notes back at the Welcome Center if you want to pick one of those up for yourself. To just have that reminder that God is our rescue, that he has given us what we need the most. Even if God doesn't give us the solution that we're looking for, even if it's not on our timeline to have God with us is the best gift that we could ever have for Christmas. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are with us 
I thank you that we don't have to fear uh, being abandoned by you. We don't have to worry that there are days that you don't care about us. And there are days, Father, when, when we feel like we are in a war zone. Maybe we feel desperate, lonely, or just reaching for any kind of help or relief in our life. And God, I ask that you would um, just remind us that you are our refuge and our strength, that your timing is perfect, your ways are perfect, and I ask that you would give us the endurance to get through that um, and to have people to come into our lives in those hard moments. I thank you for the church that you've given us, and I ask that we can be an encouragement to each other and point each other to you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.